So we are in the book of Acts. I'm sorry. We are in the book of Acts. And if you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. Uh, we have been going through the book of Acts for a couple of years now. And in the last couple of weeks, we've been taking short little chunks. Today, we're going to take a pretty, big, uh, a pretty big, bigger, large chunk. So we're going to start at 2127. And we're going to go through 2221. 2221. So kind of long. Uh, but we're going to stand and read it all together. And then we'll pray. So if you are able, would you stand and read uh, Stand and read with me? I'm going to read it out loud. After I finish, I'll say it's the word of the Lord. You'll say thanks be to God. So let's all stand together. Starting at verse 27, chapter 21, 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and Tyrians and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some of the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he had came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowds. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. And as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And they said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently started the revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Sicilia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given them permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Sicilia, brought up, on this day, brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict man of the law and our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted the way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed towards Damascus to take those who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. And as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, who are you, whom you are persecuting. Now, those who were with me saw the light, did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all what that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand of those who were with me and came to Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. <clears throat> and he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to every one of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. 
When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that I am, uh, that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. We pray this morning as we uh, read and study, Holy Spirit, that you would come now and that you would teach us, that you would guide us into truth. I pray for myself, Lord, that I would say things that are true and helpful. Um, And after our time here, not only would we have seen your word and understood your word more, but God, that our affections for Jesus would be stirred and that our desire to want to tell others that don't know you would also be stirred. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So um, last week we were in Acts 21 before that, and we had James and Paul kind of encounter each other. And if you remember, there were some <clears throat> rumors stirring about Paul. People were saying some things about Paul. Uh, and what they said, you can see in verse 21, uh, they've all been told that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk it according to their customs. So this rumor had been swirling around that Paul was kind of anti-Moses, anti-law, anti-Jewish customs now, that he was a Christian hanging out with the Gentiles and no longer needs to do any of these kind of Jewish things anymore. And that's not really exactly what Paul was saying and Paul, what Paul was doing. He was saying, in order to be saved, you do not have to be circumcised. But, I mean, with Titus and Timothy, one was, one wasn't. So he, he, he realized he wants to become all things to all people, 1 Corinthians 9, according to who he's with, to the Jew became as a Jew that I might say some, to those outside I became outside so I might say some, become all things to all people. That's, that's what he says in 1 Corinthians 9. And so James has the idea, well, what we'll do then so that the Jewish people that are really angry at you when they arrive, because they're going to, you can see... Um, in verse 22, what's going to be done? They're certainly going to hear that you've come. They know that you're back in Jerusalem. They know that you finished your, your whirlwind tour of three missionary journeys. You're back here in Jerusalem. They're going to, they're going to come because they're here because they're mad at you. And when they get here, let's do something. Whenever they get here, let's go ahead and make sure that they see you keeping Jewish customs. And they'll say, well, maybe he isn't against Jewish customs still. Because he's become as a Jew when he's with the Jews. And so Paul says, okay. And he, he, does, he enters into that Nazarite vow that some men were doing 30 days. And he goes into a seven-day vow with them. And you can see as they're finishing that they go into the temple, etc. in 26. That's all last week. Um, if you want to listen to the rest of that, we can. But the whole point is that uh, Paul is preparing himself for this. Now, the Jews that are there are going to, uh, as we just read, not appreciate everything Paul is doing. Instead, just because he's done these things, they're still going to hate him and they're still going to persecute him. We just read it. So um, whenever Paul was writing to Timothy, he told Timothy, uh, as a believer in Christ, there's, there's an expectation that you can have as a believer. He says this, we've, we've said that we've gone to this verse many times as we see suffering and persecution, but he says this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. I'm sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. He says, Uh, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And it's no different for Paul. And if you've been a believer long enough, not to the extent of Paul, but for you, you should have experienced this in some way as well. If you are desiring to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, there's going to be some level of persecution that you'll receive just like Paul. So here's the question that I think we need to ask to kind of start off, which is this, is what do we do? 
What do we do when the very people that we love and we would be willing to give our life for hate us and persecute us because we're a follower of Christ? So as you see here in verse 27, it says, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia. So these are Jews. Now, Paul's in Jerusalem right now. He just finished the third mission journey. Straight north up into the Gentile land is where Asia is, and one of those cities in the region of Asia is Ephesus. And so likely these were people that lived in Gentile land that were Jews that had traveled down because Paul was there. And we think they're from Ephesus because if you see in 29, for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian. Uh, so they see this Gentile Trophimus, and they just make up this lie. Trophimus went into the courts, with, uh, to the temple with you. And they wouldn't know who, who Trophimus was if they weren't also from Ephesus. So they're likely from Ephesus, where Paul spent a good three years ministering to the Gentiles, but Jews were there. So these were people that he had probably been around for a while, heard he was there traveling down, uh, and they hated Paul. So what would you do then if this were to happen to you? If the people that you love, that you're willing to even give your own life for, hate you because you're a Christ follower. Paul, in Romans chapter 9, actually says um, in detail just how much he loves these people that can't stand him. As a matter of fact, now this is, a, this is just a hypothetical. This isn't something that can actually happen. But Paul, uh, trying to help us understand how much he loves those who are Jewish, even though he's an, an apostle to the Gentiles, that's what Jesus just told him he was going to be. Uh, he wouldn't get to stay in Jerusalem. He needs to go to the Gentile lands because they would try to kill him. Um, but Paul in Romans chapter 9 verses 1 through 5 tells them uh, how much he loves the Israelites, how much he loves people who are Jewish. Romans 9, 1 through 5 says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness to me and the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for the people who are Jewish. And he says this. Now, here's the hypothetical. He says, for I could wish, that means it can't happen, that I myself were even accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They're the Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To, the, to them belong the patriarchs. That's the fathers of Israel. The patriarchs from their race, according to the flesh, that is Christ, who is God over all, blessing forever. Amen. So he's saying, if it's possible, it's not. I would even accurse myself and bring myself over here to never know Jesus if that would mean that all my kinsmen who are Jewish could actually know Christ, be saved by Christ, receive forgiveness of Christ, and go to heaven. I could wish that I could even be a curse for their sake. That's not possible. It's not like, hey, if, I get, if, I, if you get saved, I'll lose my salvation. We kind of shift places, and that's how, but I'm willing to do it for you because it doesn't know how it works. But what we can see in Romans 9 is this, that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish. So, Feel with us, like Paul, this first century deep love that he has for people. And here they are coming into this city, hating him and ready to kill him. So what would you do? Do you have someone that you have great sorrow and unceasing anguish for that's not a believer, that you would, you would do anything for them to come to know Christ, and yet anytime you try to tell them about Jesus, all there is is hatred and persecution of you. That's what's going on here for Paul, they can't stand him. Now, as we're looking at this large section, uh, there's, there's two ways, uh, kind of two sections we're going to look at. The first section is the action towards Paul. Um, and this is going to be in verse 27 through 36. Action. Persecuted by the people that, love, that Paul loves. That's the first thing. That, the action is that Paul is going to be persecuted by the people he loves. That's 27 through 36. This is not on the screen. There won't be on the screen today. Just, just listen. 
action is that he's persecuted by the people that he loves. The reaction is that he's going to love the people that he persecutes. I've tried to make it so simple, I even tried to use the exact same words. <laughs> but 27 through 36 is the action towards him. He's persecuted by the people that he loves. The reaction, and what would be yours when people persecute you that you love? Reaction, now, um, in our flesh, our reaction is, okay, fine, I got, you know, but reaction is persecuted by the people we love, continue loving the people that persecute us. And then we're going to actually have some tangible examples of what Paul does to do that. But let's look at the first section. Action. Persecuted by the people we love. Uh, When we completed the seven days, when they were almost complete, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. This isn't like, let's lay hands on him and pray for him. It's not one of those lay hands. This is a bad laying on hands. This is, let's, let's rip him apart and beat the trash out of him. Um, and really, there's, a, uh, there's kind of a two-pronged <clears throat> uh, attack on Paul, persecution-wise. There's this physical attack, but then there's also a mental kind of attack on him. I'll outline for you the physical and then the mental. The physical attack is, they lay hands on him, verse 27, they seize him and drag him out of the temple. That can't feel good, verse 30. Uh, they are trying to kill him, verse 31. They beat him up, verse 32. They arrest him. He event- this isn't the Jews, but this is the, the tribune. He's also arrested and bounded with chains, verse uh, 33. So that's the physical persecution that he receives. Ver- and then you have the mental uh, persecution, which is the people were stirring up the crowds against him. So... When you love someone and other people that, that you love are stirring up other people to hate you, to say things like that's, that's a mental persecution. Uh, they're also lying about him, saying that he stirs up everywhere people against him. Uh, they're also lying, saying that he took Greek, uh, Greeks or Gentiles into the temple. And there's also the mental uh, persecution from verse 36. When the, they're taking him away, the mob is actually yelling, away with him, like, that's, that's got to mentally hurt you to know that they, uh, they want you gone. So there's a two-pronged persecution that's happening to him. One's physical and one's mental. And both of these things are happening to him. And we can see uh, that they lay hands on him. And it says, crying out, men of Israel, help. This man is teaching everyone everywhere. Uh, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty all-encompassing, right? He is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Not true, half true. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and he has defiled this holy place. Not true. So uh, it, in the first century when you had the temple, there was the first kind of section that you're allowed to go into and that was the outer courts and Gentiles were allowed to go in that. But into the next section, the inner courts, only Jews were allowed to go in there. And there's a sign that actually hung there uh, that said, if you go past this and you're not a Jew, you're going to be killed. We, we're not responsible. Uh, it says something like, I read it in one of the commentaries, uh, you have willingly chosen the, the consequences by going through this, through this sign here or past this gate here if you're not a, uh, a Jew, and that's death. You will, you will, you'll be killed. They even threatened the Roman government, who are Gentiles. If you go into this one little place, you should know we're going to kill you. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll probably get killed by you, but we're going to kill you. Uh, so it was a really big deal. And then they say, and Paul knew this, 
Paul knew that this, this, this is the rule, and he's already, in the previous section we saw, painstakingly trying to, by shaving his head and entering to this vow, trying to accommodate and be a part of those who are Jewish and show that he's their brothers. And so certainly he wouldn't have done that, and then to say, and I'll just take Trophimus in there with me, even though I'm doing all these other things. And so they lie, and they say Trophimus uh, had been in there because they're supposing that he had brought him to the, to the temple, and they just tell everybody, which isn't true. And it says, as they were seeking to kill him, the word <clears throat> came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion, and that Jerusalem was in confusion. And then it says in verse 32, and at once the soldiers and centurions came and they took him down. So uh, I want to show you here the, uh, the, what Luke's trying to do in this persecution here and highlighting for us how much the Jews hated him. So in verse 30, uh, it says, and the city was stirred up and the people ran together. And it says, they seized Paul. They seized Paul. This word seized that's being used in verse 30 is the exact same word in verse 33. So the Jewish people came and seized him. The Greek word uh, being epilemabenoni or something like that. It's really long. Um, and then in verse 33 it says, in the same way, the tribune, this is the Roman government, came and they arrested him. Epilemabenoni or whatever it's called. Right? Both of these are here. But they're contrasting, Right? One, the Jews are seizing him for the purpose of hostility and persecution and hurting him. The Roman government is seizing him, arresting him for the purpose of bringing him into protective custody so the mob doesn't kill him. Now, Luke isn't trying to just highlight how great Roman is because no one really liked them, right? What he's trying to highlight, though, is the hostility, the, sec- the first side, of the Jews and how much they hated Paul and how much uh, pain they were trying and harm they were trying to bring to him. Now, why would all of this happen? Uh, what was going on here and why would the people do this? You can see that they uh, arrested him and they ordered him to be bound into two chains. You can see that in verse 33, two chains. And the reason why Luke's trying to highlight for us that it happened in two chains is because in verses 10 and 11 and verse 21, um, he's wanting us to see that the prophecy that was given by Agabus is coming into fruition. In verse 10 it says, they were... Staying there for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and said, Coming to us, he took Paul's belt around his own feet and his hands and said, This is um, the Holy Spirit. Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him to the hands of the Gentiles. So, it, what just was prophesied in verses 10 and 11 is coming true here. And so, as this is happening, it says, Luke's one and said this happened by, he's brought into two chains. So, we can see here that he's got his hands tied and it. He's got his ankles tied, more than likely. So not a whole lot of range of motion here for Paul. Uh, And they're beating him up um, before he's arrested. And now they put him in these two chains, and they're bringing him over. And it says uh, in verse 34, some of the crowd were shouting one thing, some were another. And it's just complete chaos. And as he couldn't, the tribune there, he couldn't learn the facts because of this crazy uproar. They brought him away from the crazy uproar and to the barracks. And when they brought him to the steps, he was being carried by the soldiers because it was so crazy. He couldn't, you know, move fast enough to get away. So they pick him up and they're like, just take him away from everybody. Bring him in there. And as he's about to get taken away, um, Paul's like, stop, 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 stop. I want, and they're yelling, away from him, away from him. Paul wants to say something. So uh, we can stop and say, why do the Jews hate him so much? Why did uh, God still let him go to Jerusalem knowing all this is going to happen? What's God up to? Uh, why is all this happening to Paul? Because it's important for us to ask that question because we're going to um, import ourselves into the same situation. If persecution is happening to us, just like it is Paul, we're going to say, 
why is this happening to me? I don't understand. Like, God loves me. I'm doing his will. Why is it that bad things are happening to me? So when we answer this big question for Paul, which is what we would all want to know for our own lives, um, let, me, let me answer that by the obligatory Piper comment of the sermon. Um, this is what he says. He's referencing 2 Corinthians uh, 4.17. I'll make sure I read that so you can, because uh, he doesn't quote it outright. But in 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul's talking about suffering. And he says, um, uh, let me, where are we? Where are we? 17, 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So we are receiving suffering and you think to yourself, well, this suffering doesn't seem light. It doesn't seem momentary. It seems like it's really like long and lasts my entire lifetime. And he says, yes, that's the case in your life right now, in your physical, whatever years you have, it is heavy and it is long, but in comparison of all eternity, when you look compared to eternity, it's slight and momentary. So here's what Piper says when we take this kind of big step back, like Paul and, and, and might ask, why is this happening? He says this, not only is your affliction momentary, not only is your affliction light in comparison to all eternity and the glory there, but all of it is totally meaningful. We have to make sure we understand this is not just um, random acts of occurrence when we're persecuted for our faith and wondering, well, this doesn't have a purpose. God's not up to something here. He is. All of it is meaningful. Every millisecond of your pain from the fallen nature um, or fallen man, every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience is producing a particular glory you will get because of that. It's not meaningless. It's doing something. It's not meaningless. Of course, you can't see what it's doing always. Don't look to what's seen Parenthetical, look to what's unseen. Don't say that's meaningless. It's not. It's working for you an eternal weight of glory. Therefore, don't lose heart, but take these truths and day by day focus on them. Preach them to yourself every morning. Get alone with God and preach his word into your mind and to your heart. Sings with confidence that you are new and that you're cared for. So what's happening here is... um, why would Paul be arrested in Jerusalem having wanted to go back and preach the gospel there? Because it is a link in the chain of bringing about God's sovereign purpose of getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. No arrest in Jerusalem, no pulling out from Jerusalem and taking him up to Rome. That would have never happened. And Luke's already told us in Acts 1-8, there's, there's three main, main purposes of what Luke is trying to help us understand is going on in this entire book. They're all in Acts 1-8. You can see it in Acts 1-8. For you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. First thing that Luke's trying to accomplish in one, Acts 1-8 is to help you see that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come. Acts 2, that happens. So the second thing is, you can see it, When you receive power, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. So whenever you receive power, then you're going to start becoming a witness. You're going to be someone that is going to start fulfilling the Great Commission. You're going to receive the Holy Spirit, which was promised by Jesus in John 14, 15, and 16. And now the second thing is you're going to be a witness. You're going to be someone who's going to proclaim the gospel, fulfilling the Great Commission to all people. And then not only that, not only are you going to receive the Holy Spirit and be a witness, but it's going to happen in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And for that ends of the earth part to happen, um, as we get to this particular place here in chapter 21, 
Paul has to be arrested in Jerusalem because that's why he eventually gets to Rome and to them, which is the ends of the earth. So God is up to something. This arrest is a link in the chain bringing about God's sovereign purposes to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so what we're seeing is why Paul might be asking, why is this happening? It's because God's sovereign and he's fulfilling the prophecy and fulfilling the purpose of taking the gospel everywhere. It has a point. And so as Tony Morita reminds us this, he says, uh, whenever we're being persecuted for the faith, when falsely accused and persecuted, remember that the suffering servant, capital S, suffering servant, is with you. Jesus stands ready to grant you grace in time of need, and he will have the last word. So, uh, the first section is action um, persecuted by people we love. Now, this might be something you've experienced, and the big takeaway you should get from this section is that God is always and absolutely up to, up to something when it's happening. None of it is, is meaningless. It's all meaningful. Though you might not necessarily see it, see it right away, he's absolutely up to something. And in the first century, we see it's because he's bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. For us, he's bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth still, and it's working for us in eternal weight of glory, as it says in 2 Corinthians 4.17. Now, the second side is this. If the first half is action persecuted by the people you love, then we're going to start at verse 37, uh, verse 37, and go down to 22, 21, and we're going to see the second half. The converse part is action, we're persecuted by the people we love. Now it's reaction by Paul, not the, not the mob. We keep loving the people we persecute. We know that he loves them, and what's he going to do? He's going to keep loving them. So if I say to you, whenever you're persecuted, Love the people that persecute you. You might be like, okay, I do. Uh, I still feel that way. But what does that mean? Well, here, uh, Paul is going to give us, Luke's going to give us, through Paul, three specific ways that we love them. That even though we're persecuted by them, here's three ways that we can choose to still love them and tangibly know that it's happening. There's three illustrations, I think, for us here. So let's look. Verse 30. 6 to 37. As the mob, they're all screaming, away with him. Uh, and now, I've said this before, but Luke, as he's writing this narrative, he's, he's mirroring in a lot of ways the book of Luke with the book of Acts. So as Luke finishes, the mob attacks Jesus and wants him to be persecuted and killed. In the same way as he's in, finishing the book of Acts, Paul's life, not because he's the Savior, Paul is not the Savior, but he's just doing, doing that as a narrative structure. As the mob tries to yell at Jesus and say they want him killed. The mob yells at Paul and says they want him killed. Not because Paul's like Jesus too or anything like that. Jesus, he's none of that. He's, Jesus is the savior. But Luke's using that as a narrative structure. You can see that in verse 36. They're yelling away with him. And as we go into verse 37, it says, as Paul is uh, being brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune. Now he could, as he's being taken away from the mob, just being like, forget them. Mouth closed, zip it up, going in there, be safe. But he doesn't do that, Right? The first thing that we can see, he resolves in his mind, which is this. He looks at the tribune and he says, may I say something to you? Now, the point of him asking the tribune is because he wants to speak to the people that hate him. He wants to say something to them. So that first way that we can keep loving people is what Paul does. Resolve in our mind that we will actually want to go to them and talk to them. Resolve in our mind that even though they've done something to me, even though they persecuted me, even though they hate me, I'm not just going to say, fine, no more conversation for you. You can figure it out yourself. Resolve in your mind that even though you do this, I still love you and I'm still going to come. I, every opportunity I have, I'm going 
I'm going to do everything. Paul has to ask permission to be able to do it. But here we say, I'm not going to write you off. I'm going to resolve in my mind that even though you hate persecute me, I'm still going to come to you and say something. So that's what he does. May I say something to you? And they said, do you know Greek? So Paul says it to them. And they say, do you know Greek? And you'd be like, why are they asking that? What kind of question is, do you know Greek? If I can speak to the Hebrews. Um, The reason why you can see in verse 38 is, are you not the Egyptian then who recently started the revolt and led 4,000 men and assassins? So what happened was, what happened was, so like, um, <laughs> sorry. So Paul wants to say something, right? And three years before in Jerusalem, there was this shaved head Egyptian uh, that had come up there and basically just said, I'm going to blow this whole place up one day. I'm going to knock down every wall and that's what's going to happen. And it started to happen and they found him and he like retreated and he was gone for three years. They just thought it was the bald-headed Egyptian terrorist coming back. And so when Paul says in Greek, hey, can I say something? They're like, wait a second. Aren't you the, uh, the Egyptian guy? You're not him. They don't have YouTube and they don't have facial rec and all that kind of stuff. So they're like, we don't know what you look like, but we think you're him. He's like, no. That's why he says in verse 39, I'm Paul. I'm a Jew from Tarsus, way north of here, not south in Egypt. Uh, and I'm a citizen of this obscure city. And I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And they said, all right. So that's the first little thing where he says, um, even though they hate me, I'm going to resolve to speak to them anyway. So let's not miss two kind of amazing things here. One, they just beat the trash out of him, and he still wants to talk to them. Like, if you got beat up by somebody repeatedly, a big group of people, I don't know that I want to talk to them, besides, like, saying some things that probably aren't Christian, right? Like, Paul has already resolved, no, I want to talk to him. The second thing is, Paul just got beat up. Like, he's all, all blood and like, hey, I want to talk to y'all. Like, the resiliency, is that a word? If it is, let's make it one, that he has to say, uh, I'm tied up here and I'm all bloody and nasty and still I've resolved in my head but I'm even going to push myself physically with my energy all messed up to try to talk to you now. This is all just amazing. This is all amazing that he would say, no, I want to talk to them. They just beat him up and he's still all bloody. Uh, This commentator Hughes says, what caused the bleeding and broken apostle to ask for permission to speak? To speak, a swelling passion, maybe a little irony there, swelling, swelling passion for his people the desire to be anathema even for their sake, referring to Romans 9, that they might know Christ. He loved them. He loved them. So he remains calm, filled with the Holy Spirit, and strives with a level-headedness to start talking to them about Christ. This is what he eventually does. So the first way we love people, even though they persecute us, is to resolve in our head, even though you do that, I still want to talk to you. I still want to talk to you. I'm not going to just write you off. Now, um, as you keep going, we're going to see... Not only does he decide in his head to talk to them, but the way, this is the second way we love them, the way that we talk to them is also crucial. Watch this. Um, verse 40, when he had been given permission, Paul standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And he's like, you know, chill out, hush. And there was a great hush. And it says he addressed them in the Hebrew language. This is their Aramaic. This is their street Aramaic that he uses. And then he says, brothers and fathers. So he employs familial language to try to help them see. It's not like, hey, y'all. Uh, it's brothers and fathers. Now, he's not anti-girl. I'm sure he's moms and sisters too, right? But the whole point is he's employing familial language to try to say, hey, you who are Jewish, you're my, bro- you're my family. I'm with you. So I, I'm coming down on your level. And it, 
It's a big deal, apparently, because Luke says it twice. He addresses them in the Hebrew language. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I make before you. And when he heard that they was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. So I think the, the, the main application we can draw from this, if Luke's wanting to say, make sure twice that we see, by the way, it's in Hebrew, is this. Not only do we resolve in our head and heart that we're going to speak, that when we do it, we speak to them on their level, in their language about Jesus. Uh, that just means we don't come to them in a, uh, in a sarcastic condensation, condescension, like I'm going to condescend to you and I'm going to talk to you, but it's going to be real sarcastic. And uh, we don't do the opposite of that where we stay kind of in a heady, lofty, academic um, kind of manner where they can't understand us just to say, look at my impressive speech. You know, I, I can talk real high about things that you don't know about. Neither one of those, right? He comes to them and he talks to them, not in condescending way, but in loving and caring for them. So not only do we resolve in our head that we're going to talk, when we do it, it's really simple. We talk to them in a way that shows them that whenever you're talking to me, what's going on in my head is, I know that you love me. I know that you love me. It's clear to me, even though I just did all these bad things to you, you're still talking to me in a manner that shows you love me. Now, this only comes from Christ. This only comes from Christ. But that's the second way we keep loving them is when we talk to them, we talk to them on their level, in their language, that we're not doing it in a way that's trying to uh, be sarcastic. We're also not trying to do lofty, impressive, heady kind of speech. Well, let me talk to you about ecclesiology. Like, because we're, we're not trying to impress them, right? We're not trying to impress them. We want to love them. And the reason why is this. Um, because of the gospel, because of Jesus giving his life for us, and now all the Father sees when he sees us is the righteousness of Christ, you have nothing to prove and nobody to impress. You have nothing to prove and nobody to impress. That's good news. That's good news for us. Because Jesus has already done everything for you. I'll say it this way. You all have already impressed the most important person in the world, God the Father. When God the Father looks at you, he's absolutely 100% impressed because when he looks at you, he sees Jesus. And so you have nothing. Who else do you need to impress? The Father of all creation is already impressed with you because of Christ. You have been given, imputed the full righteousness of Christ. Therefore, my interactions with anybody, I have nothing to prove to them because God the Father is completely impressed with me by seeing Christ and I'm already righteous. So my interactions with people don't have to be filled with, hey, this is my credentials, this is who I am. Look at me, I'm so great. I have nobody impressed. Nothing to prove, nobody impressed because Jesus has given his life for me and we are already completely Forgiven by Jesus. And so Paul knows all this and wants to talk to them. And it says, brothers and fathers, hear the defense. Now, you probably know the word defense. You've probably been in church long enough. You might know this is the apologia. As we're commanded in 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give a defense of the hope that you have. Paul, in the midst of this persecution, is ready. He's obeying the principle of 1 Peter 3.15 in the midst of persecution, he's ready to give a defense of the hope that he has. It's like 1,000 degrees. I'm going to get some water. I'm sorry. Ah, so he's obeying this. He's prepared to give his defense in this moment. Now, he has nobody, nothing to prove, nobody to impress. And then he goes into verse 3. And what looks like, uh, he starts his resume. And you're like, wait a second, Fudd. Why did you say he has nobody to impress when he's given this impressive resume? Look, 
I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Sicily, uh, brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law, as our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you this day, I persecuted the way to the death, binding and delivering both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear witness. Uh, um, from them, I received letters to the brothers. I journeyed towards Damascus, and I was trying to, like, like, wait a second, Fud. If he has nobody impressed, and he's talking to these Jews who hate him, who want to do that exact same thing, why is he li- trying to list out what seems to be the impressive resume? Well, I'd say a few things about that. One, the whole point is this. I don't think Paul's trying to impress him with this resume. This is not for him uh, impressive. We already know in Philippians 3, when he lists out a very similar kind of list at the very end, he says, that all that's scubala. That's all just feces. So he already thinks of that resume as ashes for the dung heap. He's not really impressed by it. Number two, if, uh, if this was impressive, he wouldn't think that persecuting the way to the death is good because he's a part of the way now, which is Christianity. So it's not impressive to him that he tried to kill Christians. He thinks that's actually pretty bad. Um, so I, I don't think that Paul's trying to, uh, trying to be impressive here. I think all he's trying to do is just... Um, Speak to Jewish people in an informational manner so that they know uh, who he is and what's going on. Now, the third thing is this. There's three places in the book of Acts where Paul, well, it's written about Paul's conversion. Acts 9, uh, as we hear, Acts 22, and the last one is Acts Acts 26 when he's before Felix. Um, And all three of those uh, times where we see the conversion of Paul, they're, they're being told to us in the book of Acts, uh, and it's the same story, but there's a little bit of a, um, an emphasis, an extra emphasis in some. So in, in Acts 9, it's just telling us this, this flagrant guy that hated Jesus is converted. Now, that's whenever Luke's just kind of recounting it. But in Acts 22, Paul's recounting it. And when he's doing it, his audience are Jewish people. And so what he's trying to do here, since his audience is Jewish people, and he's recounting what happened, is he's trying to help them see... Um, the very thing that they were trying to accuse him of isn't true. Actually, I, I, I am a Jew. I respect Jewish customs. And as I give this entire story of how I was converted, I'm going to highlight Jewish things as many times as I can to help you see that, yeah, I'm pro-Jew. Like, I'm one too. So that's why he says, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus. That's why in verse 12 he says, this one Ananias, a devout man according to law, well spoken of by the Jews. Hey, hey, he can vouch for me. Jews, I'm okay. It's like he, as he's doing this, he's trying to highlight Jewish things to help them see that, uh, that he's not against Moses completely, like they say uh, in, verse, in chapter 21. So as you're reading this, I don't think Paul's trying to outline a, a resume to impress. I just think he's trying to give them the information because of his audience. So he's, um, he's telling them who he is, he's getting on their level, and he's talking to them. So what we've seen so far is he resolves in his heart and mind, even though that they persecuted him, he's going to talk. The second thing is that when he talks, he decides it's going to be in a Christ-like way, on their level, using familial language, speaking to them in their language, on their level, etc. The third thing that he does, I bet you can guess, it's his road to Damascus experience, right? So what we can do to keep loving people that persecute us is resolve in our mind to tell them, tell them in a Christ-like manner. And the third thing is, Tell them what Christ has done in your life. It's the best way you can keep loving them. Keep telling them the good news of Jesus and how it's personally affected you. That's what he does. And when he does that, um, in verses 3 through 17, even 16, but even through 21, when he does that, he does it in the most familiar outline that anybody uses when they talk about the good news. My life before Christ, 
my experience with Christ and how I was converted, and now what Christ is doing with me. If you've ever been baptized at Remy, that's what we tell you. Tell me your life before Christ, tell me how you got converted, and tell me what Jesus is doing right now in your life. It's the most familiar outline that you can use. And Paul does this. He, my life before Christ, this is how Jesus converted me, or my experience, or my encounter with Jesus, and here's what God's doing with me now. That's what's going on here. So, we can see it. My life before Christ, that's that outline he does in verse, or that list in verse three. I was all these things. I was a enemy of God, an enemy of God, a hater of the church. I tried to do, my way, do everything I could to kill the church. That's what we see. My life before Christ, three through five. Six through 11, here's my encounter with Jesus. Here's how Jesus encountered me. Now, Paul's is unique. You won't have an encounter like Paul, but nevertheless, you will still have a miraculous encounter. You might say, it's not miraculous, a light didn't blind me. Hey, if you were dead in sin and an enemy of God, and now you are not, that's still miraculous. You might not have gotten blinded by Jesus on the road to Damascus, but still, nevertheless, it's quite miraculous that God saved you and me. So it's the same thing. We can see that in his encounter with Jesus. I was on my way and drew near to Damascus. You can, this is, again, this is a recounting of Acts 9. Uh, a great, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground, saw, saw, why you persecuted me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? Um, and he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth is, is new. That wasn't in Acts 9. Again, um, wanting them to see that Jesus is Jewish and he's okay with people who are Jewish. Uh, now those who were with me saw the light but didn't understand the voice who was with me speaking. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And he said, rise and go into Damascus and there you'll be told all that's appointed for you to do. And since I couldn't see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand of those who were with me into Damascus. And one Ananias, <clears throat> y'all know them, remember him? He's a good guy. Look, he's a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by the Jews. He can vouch for me and say, you shouldn't be killing me today. That's kind of like the, the, the parenthetical underlying point that he's trying to make. Like, don't kill me. Ananias wouldn't. Um, came to me and standing by me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And by that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. And you will be, here it is, a witness. You'll be a witness for him. So what we see, well, let's stop at verse 11. So the encounter with Jesus is in verse, verses 6 through 11. Um, and this, as he's being persecuted, uh, it says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So what he was doing was persecuting the church, but Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Which shows us the, the personal interrelationship that Jesus has with this church. If you're persecuting the bride of Christ, you're persecuting Jesus. And so um, Paul stopped and and, and became a believer, and he has this encounter with Jesus. And when Paul met the living Christ, that changed everything for him in 6 through 11. It changed everything. And, and similarly, in this, and for you, when you had an encounter, whenever it was, if you're a believer in Christ, uh, whenever you had an encounter with Jesus, in the same way that it changed everything for Paul, it should change everything for you. Everything. This was your life before Christ. You were an enemy. Now you have an encounter with Christ. Everything's changed. And then, after that, the third part is, what's Jesus doing now? It's this. Paul got sent on a specific mission to reach the Gentiles. You have been sent on a specific mission. It's not like Paul. Nevertheless, it is still to evangelize. It is still to reach people. His was to the Gentiles. You can see that in verse 17. But nevertheless, we've all been sent uh, on a mission. That's why he said, Ananias came to me. And you can see it in verse 15. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. Now, because we've read Acts 1.8, we know, we know what Luke's trying to do. He's trying to say, remember that we're all going to be witnesses and we're going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth? Paul's one of those people. 
So when you're reading this story about them persecuting, Paul's fulfilling what God wants by being one of those witnesses who's going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And the same is true for you if you're in Christ. You're one of these witnesses. You are someone who can witness to the veracity of the good news of the gospel and tell them what Christ has done and beckon them and plead with them to come to know Christ and, and do this kind of opposite this, if you read it backwards in verse 16, it says, and now what do you wait? Rise to be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name. You can call on his name. Jesus, I call on you, forgive me. Be my savior. You can have your sins washed away and then you also can be baptized, signifying that you have been saved. So Paul's sent on mission, just like we're all sent on mission in verses 12 through 21. So if we're looking at this third way to love them. We love them by telling them the story of Christ and how he's changed our life. We were enemies of Christ. We have an encounter with Jesus at some point, And now we're sent on mission. So here's a challenge for you, right? Here's a challenge for you. Can you share the gospel? Can you love people by telling the story of what Jesus has done for you? Can you share that in 30 seconds or 30 minutes? You know, not every you get 30 minutes, but can you do it in a, in a bite size, or can you, if they give you a longer portion, can you do that? It's a good challenge, I think, to try to do this week is, can I tell people what Christ has done for me, my story, my life before Christ, how I encountered Jesus, and now what God's doing for me? Can I say that in a, in a minute? Work on that this week. Work on that in your community groups. Work on telling each other, this is, this is the story of what Christ has done in my life. It's important to have that down, because whenever Paul had this moment, he was ready to make a defense. You need to be ready as well. You're going to get these moments, especially if you're praying for them. You're going to get these moments. So Paul does that. He does that. Now, the amazing thing here that we're seeing that Paul's trying to help us understand is that um, Jesus didn't execute Paul on the road to Damascus. It could have just been, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Death. Now you're off the face of the earth, not trying to kill anybody anymore. It wasn't that. Jesus didn't execute him, but instead he took a terrorist and turned him into an evangelist. That's unbelievable. I mean, just put that in our modern day terms. Someone who's a terrorist being converted and becoming a modern day Billy Graham. That's what happened here. He didn't just kill him. Instead, he turned him into one of the greatest evangelists ever to live. And all that does is put on display the unbelievable power of the gospel in someone's life. That Jesus, when he saves, he saves fully and revolutionary in our lives. And certainly, certainly, this is for you as well. Without question, he turned him into a witness. And so if you're not a believer in Christ, here's what I want to say to you. If you look at verse 16, God is saying to you, call on his name. You can have your sins washed away. And then you can also be baptized, symbolizing what's happened to you already. If you're not a believer in Jesus, trust in him right now. He's beckoning you softly and tenderly, calling you to put your faith in him and be forgiveness. He died on the cross for you because he loves you. He wants you to be forgiven of your sin. You know that your sin's weighing in on you and you feel the the enormity of it and you want forgiveness. He's saying, come, trust in me. I died on the cross for you. All of that sin was put on me and all of the righteousness and forgiveness can be put on you and you can live forever, forever as his son and daughter. If you're not a believer, I think that's a good, good challenge for you. If you are a believer in Christ, let's close this way. Let's close this way. 
we've seen the reaction of persecution against believers. And we've also seen, conversely, the reaction that we as believers should have. So let's think about those three things, and I want to challenge you. In your heart, in your head, in your mind, in your soul, right now, ask and beg the Lord. If those things happen, Lord, help me resolve in my mind that I will not start hating them and stop loving them, but I will say, nope, I'm still going to talk to them. I'm going to make up my mind now that I want to continually love them by saying I'm going to go to them anyway. And that when I do, the language that I use, the manner in which I speak, it's going to be loving. And also, when I do, I'm going to be prepared. I'm not just going to kind of halfway try to run through it and maybe I can get something out that makes some kind of coherent sense. Like Paul, like Peter tells us, I want to be able to stand there and make a defense of the gospel. I want to say, what happened to me before I was a believer, my life before Christ? I want to talk about my encounter with Jesus, and I want to, I want to tell them what God's doing in my life right now, and then take those things and say, you believe. I beckon you. I employ you as 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. I make my appeal, God making his appeal through me. Be reconciled to God. This is, I think, an incredible challenge for us is to resolve in our hearts and minds that we'll love them and prepare ourselves to know how to say what happened to us also can be for you. God's calling all of us, despite possible persecution that might be pending to us, to love others and tell them the good news of what Christ has done. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word I thank you for examples like this where we don't lift up Paul as the Messiah, Jesus as the Messiah, but we see examples of men, flawed as they are, we see examples of men that sought after your heart and sought to tell people that didn't know you about Jesus. And so God, we we thank you for this. We thank you that inside of this uh, story and example of Paul, there are principles that we can have that help us see no, we, we love people no matter what happens. We, despite persecution, we continue to love them. And here's how. We talk to them still. We get on their level and we tell them what Christ can do in their life. So I pray for us all that we would resolve in our hearts and heads to do this, God. That we would want to be your church on mission, reaching this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.